Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and welcome to You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. In this episode, we take a closer look at season two of the Netflix documentary series, Tiger King. This is what he wanted, to be on every social media platform, on every billboard, to be the talk of the town. Joe has been famous in his own head forever. Today, we're talking to directors Eric Good and Rebecca Chaiklin. When we last heard from America's most notorious big cat owners, Joe Exotic was behind bars, convicted of animal abuse and planning the murder of activist Carol Baskin. And Jeff Lowe and Tim Stark formed an uneasy partnership to construct a new roadside zoo featuring Joe's animals. Now, the sudden fame of the documentary and unwanted attention from the authorities turns up the heat and unearths some stunning revelations. What Alan has admitted to is that the case against Joe is based upon perjury because Jeff was telling him what to say and what to do. That warrants a new trial. That is in the interest of justice. And I'm joined by directors Eric Good and Rebecca Chaiklin. Eric, welcome back to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you for having me. And Rebecca, it's wonderful to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. We're excited to be back. Eric, the last time I talked with you, now, I just listened back to that interview. We had no idea that Tiger King was going to be such a huge hit. Was there a moment when you realized it was a mega hit? Yeah, I, I, I realized that um, in the aftermath, I think both Rebecca and I thought it would be successful and we were very excited about the outcome, but had no idea it would become what it became. Rebecca, was there a moment for you where you realized, wow, like a lot of people are watching this thing? I think for me, I'm somebody who's not on social media. I'm so completely outside of that world. And when my son like every two seconds was running up to me, like cracking up with these memes. It sort of dawned that it had sort of cut through to popular culture in a way that was kind of, you know, we thought it was a great story and an unbelievable cast of characters, but I don't think in our wildest dreams we ever expected it to have the audience and viewership and fans you know, support that it did. Eric, were you surprised at how many of the central figures from Tiger King agreed to do season two of the series? 
I, I, I was not surprised for the most part uh, that certain people did not sign on. Hmm. And I was surprised that um, some did sign on. What was, you know, obviously very, you know, interesting is how the story moved from one group to the other. And thankfully, we, or, you know, we had other subjects that weren't central in, in the first season of Tiger King that we focused on on the second. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Who do you mean? Well, you know, and Rebecca knows this very well, that exotic animal business industry in the United States is is large. And the tiger world is also quite large. Um, and so Tiger King focused on Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin, but other characters, you know, Doc Antle, Jeff Lowe, but it's a much bigger story. And there are many more operations that we did not chronicle in the first season. Um, and so the second season, we cast a wider net and included some of those people that were more tangential to the core story of, of the feud between Carol and, and uh, Joe. I was surprised to hear at the beginning of season two that visits to some of these parks actually increased after the release of Tiger King. Rebecca, were you surprised by that? Yes, I was surprised by that. I, it was a little disheartening. Yeah, I mean, because there was so much in the original Tiger King about what happens to the cubs after they kind of go through all of these, you know, petting experiences and how not great it is for people to keep these large animals. Do you think it was just that people wanted to have exposure to the animals because they saw you could do that? Or do you think that people perhaps wanted to see the, the people who were in Tiger King or some combination of both? Well, I would hope it was the latter, that there was a, you know, I think it's undeniable that we tapped into a world of incredibly colorful characters. And, you know, at a certain point, you have to hold individuals responsible. But I do think collectively, as a society, we don't do enough to educate people or to even awaken their curiosity about the natural world. And and so I don't even blame some of the people who keep these animals just because we don't encourage that as a culture. And so I think we were hoping to, in a fun and colorful way, in a way that would reach a wider audience, also let people know that these animals really don't belong in captivity, that we should be appreciating them and wanting to see them in the wild. It's hard to, I, I hate to start pointing fingers. I think we have to collectively sort of raise awareness about what's best. Right. It's really interesting to me, Eric, that so many people in the film and in the culture refer to Joe Exotic as a hero. I would love to be able to watch the documentary. Maybe later down the road I can. But, you know, with all of the guards, they're singing my music videos and... You know, wanting the autographs and saying that they're going to buy my underwear off the Internet. I understand the appeal of that. I understand, you know, the reasons. I, I really do. And I, I find him to be a, a fascinating figure. I know that he's a polarizing figure, too, and a controversial figure. I'm curious on your take on that specifically. How do you think of that framing of Joe Exotic as the hero of this story? I, I don't think there's any heroes in this story, you know, for the most part. I, and I think that. You know, that's a very difficult question. Um, you know, obviously, in many ways, Joe is a fascinating character, you know, for all of the obvious reasons, you know, being so flamboyant in a 
you know, very conservative state, uh, Oklahoma, um, and everything that goes with Joe. But, you know, I think one of our, uh, if I had a regret, I would say was that we didn't get the voice of everyone in this story. And namely, we didn't get the voice of law enforcement. And there's a lot more to tell on the Joe story uh, because it's an active, you know, there's lawsuits pending and it's a, an ongoing investigation, not investigation, um, but law enforcement wasn't able to speak with us, uh, namely U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Department of Justice and the FBI. So we, we have our story told by one side, largely. I, I think Joe is an incredibly unique, colorful, charismatic and creative character. And I think in a world where everyone is sort of like obsessed with branding themselves and making themselves look so good, and he was just so off the cuff and he was who he was and he wore all his dirty laundry on his sleeve in a way that was very disarming and incredibly appealing in this very cultivated world, curated world that we live in. But he certainly, you know, he did things that were really, really awful to the animals. And so it's, he's complicated, as most of us are. And, and he was also incredibly charming. And to some people, he was incredibly generous. And so I think that's what makes an interesting character is somebody who is all of those things in one package. Eric, you just talked about what you weren't able to get in the film, the voices you weren't able to get. But one thing you were able to really do in this part of the documentary was get the story of young Joe's life. What do you think were some of the key takeaways from that that we're able to get as viewers that we weren't able to see in Tiger King Part One? Well, Joe comes from a large family, you know, five kids. And what we learned talking to both Joe's brother, one of Joe's, uh, well, Joe's brother and one of Joe's sisters was that they grew up on a farm and really had very little love in their lives from their, from their parents. And they were treated like farmhands, workers effectively. So, so Joe and his siblings had a, a hard life and there wasn't a lot of love in, between, you know, in the family in general, not just from the parents. You know, we, it was fascinating to look at Joe's backstory, and maybe it gives us some a, a window into how Joe became what Joe became and the evolution of Joe. And, and I'd really let the series speak for itself on that. This story is about, in so many ways, cycles of abuse. And mm. Joe came from a very dysfunctional, abusive, loveless family. And I think so many of these characters have, and many, and maybe in some ways that's what has made them gravitate towards animals because they've been hurt by humans. And so in a lot of ways, it's about those, it, I was, I mean, there were so many things about Joe's life. The fact that he had been engaged to this woman, the fact that he had fathered uh, you know, two kids, not biologically, but had stepped in as a father. The fact there's so many things that were, you know, he's a fascinating character and, and extremely creative, I have to say, even from prison is like constantly thinking of like new, crazy, like ideas that are so off the wall, but they're, they're so funny and, and just one of a kind. 
Yeah, it was like a choose-your-own-adventure life almost that Joe has. You know, it's it's really, you can't make it up. Uh, not to quote the title of this podcast, but you really can't. There's something that I really need to ask you, and that is about the public reaction to Carol Baskin after Tiger King won. I was incredibly disappointed by the public's reaction to Carol versus the reaction to Joe. Hi, everybody. My name's Joey. The reaction to Joe was hashtag free Joe exotic. Certain people treating him like some kind of folk hero when he was convicted of trying to murder this woman. But... The negative stuff we saw was that bitch, Carol Baskin. We find that bitch, Carol Baskin, gonna put her head on a stick. What did you think about that, Rebecca, when that was all playing out in such a big way? I mean, I felt badly that the court of a public opinion was so resoundingly negative. Obviously, we spent a lot of time looking into this story and, and this season way more. And we went so deep into so many details about the two narratives of her and her husband's lives and all the things that they were involved with, which was very complicated and dark and colorful. But I felt badly. And yet at the same time, I also feel badly for Don Lewis's family that they have never really gotten answers. And there were a lot of suspicious circumstance around Carol doesn't mean that she is culpable, but it's, we, we certainly put a spotlight on all of these suspicious circumstance. And then people, the court of public opinion sort of ran with that. But I, I would, I've always said repeatedly that, you know, we live in a society which people are innocent until proven guilty. And she has not been proven guilty or convicted in a court of law. And we have to remember that and respect that. Yeah, I echo what Rebecca just said. I think Carol Baskin is complex. She evolved and her story began with her and Don Lewis keeping exotic animals and doing the very thing that many of these people she's against do. And so Carol, you know, went from that and, you know, she's a dedicated, obsessive cat person to where she is today. And I think it's complicated. And as Rebecca said, there were a lot of real suspicions that we felt that we had a responsibility to look into and to try to follow uh, as it relates to her late husband. It was a storyline that we really weren't interested in initially. Like that was not what we set out to do. But as, you know, sort of long-term verite documentaries oftentimes do, it just kept coming, like these things kept coming up and up and up. And at a certain point, because we were featuring her, we would have been remiss as storytellers not to follow up on some of the things that were shared with us. And so it sort of sent us down this path and it was like, you know, every door you opened led you to like 10 more doors. And it was, it, it was mind boggling. But we did not set out to make, you know, this true crime documentary. <laughs> it just evolved to that place. Let's talk a little bit about Eric Love. Remind me how he got involved in this case. Well, you know, there's a number of people that came out of the woodwork and took this on. You know, Eric Love, Jack Ripper, John Phillips, people that saw an opportunity and tried to seize that opportunity. I reached out to Joe and explained to him that I had looked at his case 
and I felt like we had a good opportunity to blow holes all through it, and I think we can get him released. I've assembled a team right now that is going to put the five-finger death punch on this case. Eric Love had never met Joe Exotic, knew very little about Joe Exotic, and pretty much all he knew was what he saw in Tiger King. Eric Love capitalized on a moment and recognized the PR opportunity in that moment. And it'll be interesting to see if Eric Love comes back into this story, or did he just try to, you know, take advantage of a moment? Did you play ever play the odds in your head? Like, what were the odds to you that uh, Donald Trump might pardon Joe Exotic, Rebecca? I did not think that he was going to pardon him for a really long time. And then, you know, it's interesting, sort of, as you spent time around these people, you were like, well, maybe <laughs> we would have these conversations like, wow, it really seems to be gaining traction. And is it really possible that, you know, that our president, it, it's become so surreal in this country that he would actually pardon somebody? So, yes, I went from being like, absolutely, I can't believe this would ever happen to there was a few weeks in there leading up to, to the election where I thought eh, it's a possibility. I, I completely agree with Rebecca. Donald Trump you know, is transactional. The people he pardoned were pardoned for a reason that oftentimes benefited Donald Trump. And there was a point when we thought that Joe might have enough of a constituency that Donald Trump might care about. And, and we thought that for, for that reason, and only that reason, that Donald Trump might have pardoned Joe Exotic um, because he saw that Joe had a huge following that might benefit Donald Trump. Another character in the film that I really want to talk about is John Phillips. He, again, is someone who really seems to love the camera, not just in your series, but in other times in his life. I will ask one time that we come together to find closure. If that can't be done, I'm a lawyer. I sue people. Rebecca, I would love your impressions of him. John Phillips does love the camera. He's very, he's super polished in front of the camera. He thrives on the camera. Those are all qualities that are very beneficial to Joe in this particular case, because Joe needs to stay in the public eye in order for people to care about his case, to put pressure on for his case. So I think they're a really good match. We talked about this in the last time, last time that we spoke. All of these big cat people have outsized personalities, and it seems everyone in both series have outsized personalities. Have you ever, in your entire time visiting people, filming people in the big cat community, ever met anybody who was just a regular Joe, ever? <laughs> For the most part, they do have big personalities and egos. And, you know, there's a reason why they have a tiger or a lion. But yes, the, the answer is yes. I have met people that did not have that huge personality like a Doc Antle or a Joe Exotic. Obviously, Rebecca and I gravitated to the people that had the big personalities, but by and large, they do. But like in all things, we also met people like Mark McCarthy and other 
people that keep exotic animals and tigers that I wouldn't put in the same category in respect to to the oversized personality. So, Rebecca, I could be in line behind somebody at Target and they might have a big cat and I wouldn't know. Yes, you (laughs) you, especially if you were in (laughs) Oklahoma or Texas. It's easy to generalize about groups of people. Mm. And I want to be careful not to generalize about groups of people. Yes, Tiger King focused on a lot of the exotic animal owners that had larger than life personalities. But like anything in life, there's all kinds of people involved in this world. Rebecca, the business relationship between Jeff and Tim, was it doomed from the start? I the business relationship between Jeff and Tim was definitely doomed from the start. They may not have been aware of it, but it didn't really have much of a chance. I think they were both sort of on their last legs and coming together, wanting to sort of use one another, and it imploded. It was supposed to be 50-50 partnership, but there was absolutely nothing 50-50 about it. I was paying 100% of the bill. I was doing 100% of the work. I was moving some of my animals. Most of these people, Tim Stark, Joe Exotic, Jeff Lowe, Doc Antle, Mario Tabrawe, most of these people can only have one leader. It's like a cult leader. They cannot have a partner, really. And so they all run their own cult effectively. They all are in control of their own world. They're all their own Tiger King. And none of them can really operate function with a partner. And and that's why you can see the pattern. Jeff was partners with Joe. That imploded. Jeff was partnered with Tim. That imploded. These people operate as their own Tiger King in their own bubble. Is this why these private zoos all collapsed around the same time? Because they all tried to work together? Or was there another reason why they all seemed to, you know, the whole thing seemed to collapse like a house of cards? Well, I would just say this. The world of private ownership and roadside zoos is large. And the zoos that collapsed or the operators that collapsed were those that were involved in this story. So I just want to make the distinction that Tim and Jeff Lowe and Joe Zoo imploded, but they were already heading in that direction before we came along. And, And it had a lot to do with the pressure from animal rights groups, namely PETA and the government But not all roadside zoos have collapsed. So, Eric, the government said that Jeff's animals and Tim's animals weren't properly cared for. Were they right? Yes. Yes. You can't have, at the end, Jeff Lowe had almost 200 big cats without the resources to take care of them. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, why would anyone, Joe Exotic included, have almost 200 tigers. And it's like saying, I have 200 children. How can you possibly give these animals the care and the quality of life that they need when you have 200 of them? When did you realize that Tim was heading into a deep spiral? Oh God, from the very beginning. These animal rights activists, their opinions do not make it the law. So I will announce to the judge, judge, you better tell them not to even look my direction. Because when they look my direction, that's going to give me the opportunity to put the crosshairs right between their eyes, literally. I will shoot to kill. I will stand my ground for what I believe in. Tim Stark, you know, you love him or hate him, he's his own worst enemy. And when we met Tim Stark, 
you know, he had already been targeted by PETA and the Department of Justice, I mean, the uh, Attorney General of Indiana. And Tim didn't see it, but Tim, from the very day that we met Tim Stark, you could just predict how it was going to end. It's interesting to me to hear, Rebecca, that you and Eric have storylines that you're both, you know, sort of the captain of. So I'm assuming that you maybe caught up on some of the storylines if you guys are co-directing this. The dramatic scene of the, the truck chase. He's going like 100 miles an hour. Gunning. God damn it. How do we fucking lose him? How do we fucking lose him? I'm curious to know what you thought when you saw that scene for the first time. We have had a lot of crazy (laughs) moments, as you can imagine, making this series. And Eric is a pretty wild, out there character. So it wasn't that surprising to me that he would be racing 100 (laughs) miles an hour after Tim. Uh, So how far did you chase Tim's truck before he disappeared, Eric? Not long. Um, but, you know, I, I'll just point out that not only did we chase Tim Stark, there were times when we were being chased going 100 miles an hour on freeway. So it wasn't us just chasing Tim Stark. It was times when we were being chased. As, as Rebecca points out, it was a, a wild ride over the last 18 months. Can you talk about the scene in which Alan leads John and your crew to that piece of discarded wire? So it was very shocking and surprising when Alan Glover in his sworn affidavit brought to light that there had been allegedly had been a murder for hire plot that he was involved with to potentially try and kill Joe, which in some ways made sense. And because they hated each other, absolutely hated each other. And so, and then when he said the technique by which they were going to do so was stringing a wire and Joe would race around the park on these four wheelers and they thought they would decapitate him. A lot of themes of decapitation around potential murder for hire plots in this story. And so he was very scared because there was a warrant out for his arrest in Oklahoma, uh, an active warrant in which he was going to have to serve like real jail time. So it was a very sort of high stakes driving into Oklahoma with him. And he took us onto this park and, you know, which we were not supposed to be on that property. And, they looked and they found one wire and they, and he was like, no, that's not it. And they kept looking and we thought it wasn't going to, and then he he found this wire. Now I, I need to qualify that this is a park that is filled with wire cages. So it's really hard to say what exactly that means, but for him, this was a very specific wire that he had strung up in an attempt allegedly, to kill Joe before the murder-for-hire plot to kill Carol. So the narrative twist and the legal argument here for Joe is that because Jeff and Alan planned to kill Joe while he was out riding the ATV, then the story of Joe conspiring with Jeff and Alan to kill Carol in that same fashion couldn't be true. Do I have that right? I, I think we'll have to see what his legal team argues. Right, right. 
Eric, the film ends with footage of rescue tigers being released on a sanctuary. I'm curious why it was important to you to end it that way. Well, I like to think that it ends with the message showing wildlands in the the home range of tigers. Um, I think, you know, it was very, maybe the most moving scene in the whole film is seeing the tigers and lions able to run and see them in a larger space, uh, which happened in Colorado uh, at the tiger sanctuary, big cat sanctuary. But the real message at the end of the film is to really send a very strong message that tigers should be in the wild and that there is wild land remaining in the 13 countries where tigers still survive and that no cage, no matter how big, can be satisfactory for a tiger's needs. And that was really the real message because a caged tiger can't raise their young, can't mate, can't hunt, can't be a tiger. And uh, that was a very important message for us. So Rebecca, what was your favorite moment from season two of Tiger King? When Tim Stark calls Eric and says he's going to slit his throat. (laughs) If you had to blame any one person or organization, who would you blame? Peter. It's all Peter and Carol Baskins. And you. Why me? When you look at who's being sued, whether it was Joe, me, Jeff, who's the common denominator in that, Eric? Who's the the common denominator? The one negative thing comes out about me from here on out, whether it be in Tiger King 2 or any of this kind of shit, I'll slice your fucking throat, bitch. (laughs) What about you, Eric? Oh, my God. I had so many. There were so many amazing moments. Um, But I think one of the most incredible moments for me personally was when the, uh, the, the attorney general the Indianapolis Zoo, the many, many sanctuaries came to Tim Stark's facility that morning. All of these greedy ass people, I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousand dollars worth of animals that they're coming to steal. And when I saw the scale of that operation, the SWAT teams with machine guns, the different layers of law enforcement, local, federal, and just the caravan of vehicles and heavy equipment that came in to remove the animals from Tim Stark's facility in Indiana. That morning, that moment was incredible to witness and to see that it was really happening and that we were privileged enough to be there to, to document it. Eric, I know the issue of big cat ownership is really important to you. After the release of Tiger King 1 and, and now this series, what are viewers saying to you? You know, when you talk to people who've seen the series, do they talk to you about the issue? And, and what do they say to you about it? Well, of course, people always ask. You know, I remember, actually, because I've driven, I want to say, maybe 25,000 miles over the last two years across the United States, crisscrossing back and forth. And one time I was unfortunate was pulled over by a police officer in texas for speeding and he took me to his little station because that how it, that's how it works there and then he walked up to me and i thought oh god am i going to jail am i gonna pay a fine and he said did carol do it and that's what i knew wow you know first of all i i had this guy you know we became friends instantly and that was the proverbial question did carol do it or is Joe innocent or guilty? But in the end, I think that the real question is uh, the question about the tigers and, and the, the real star of the series that can't talk. And what would they say about the situation that they're in? 
you know, and, and the, you know, the condition of these animals in captivity. Rebecca, do you think you were able to move the needle there with these two series, with the issue of big cat ownership? Do people know more about it because of your work on Tiger King 1 and 2? I think that the popularity of the series raised awareness around this issue in a way that nobody had been able to raise awareness you know, prior to. It, it, it sort of catapulted it into the public spotlight. And so, yes, I think it's done a lot. And, and we have been contacted by so many people who are in a position to pass legislation who have affirmed that. Rebecca, what's the current state of Joe's appeals? Do you know? It's very complicated. Joe's sentence was vacated and he is waiting, awaiting resentencing, which should happen right after Tiger King 2 comes out. And then once that resentencing takes place, but there were many motions to try and get the judge to recuse himself because they had a long history. Once he's resentenced, which will be most likely a shorter sentence um, because there was a misstep on the part of the court in terms of conflating two murder for hires that he should have been sentenced for one. He will then begin his appeal process. And because he's also been diagnosed with cancer now, I think he will be asking for a compassionate release as well. Hmm. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. And of course, it's going to be interesting to see how Tiger King 2 lands. Uh, I'm sure everyone is going to watch it who doesn't live under a rock, just like with Tiger King 1. Rebecca Chaiklin, thank you so much for joining me again on You Can't Make This Up to talk about Tiger King 2. Thanks for having me. And Eric Good, it was so wonderful speaking with you again. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Eric Good and Rebecca Chaiklin. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.